I would be very sad if my brother hit me with a rock. Hard enough to kill you? Welcome to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie, and today we are talking about the murder of Lacey Peterson, part three. Oh, man. It's been a long, strange trip to get here. I just want everyone to know how prepared I am for this episode. Can't stress that enough. Now, uh, what books did you use your research as your research this week, Katie? The last three weeks, I've used A Deadly Game by Catherine Cryer, Witness by Amber Fry, and Blood Brother by Ann Bird. And I also watched The Murder of Lacey Peterson, which is an A&E special. And I watched Diane Sawyer's interview with Scott Peterson. Six minutes. Six minutes. Of research. And I read this article from the DailyMail.uk, which is very long. Yeah, I am feeling ready. I've got talking points. We're ready to just... Destroy Scotty P. Waited till the very end. Where did we leave off last week? Last week, the news had just broke about Scott's affair with Amber Fry, and Scott was traveling to the L.A. area to start his own volunteer center to search for Lacey and their unborn son, Connor. I kind of remember that. It was a week ago. I know, it was a long time ago. Well, you were there when it happened, and you edited the episode, so I would hope you remember it, sort of. You know, like, sometimes you hear things live, and then you hear them recorded, and you don't remember any of it. That's just what happens. Maybe you should start listening to our podcast. <laughs> or listen to me when I talk for I like an hour and no, a half. No, I literally listen to you all the time. Or just... look at the script before it's time to record. You know what? I was busy. Rory's just getting raked over the coals today. Yeah. All right, Katie, why don't you go ahead and start us off? When he returned home to Modesto after a few days, he discovered his home had been burglarized. Nothing was stolen, but a bottle of whiskey had been drank, food eaten, and Christmas presents opened. That's actually standard practice for a California Santa. He's like opposite Santa. Drinks your booze, eats your food, opens your presents. I think I saw that on the third Friday movie. Oh, there's no snow either, so the reindeer don't appreciate California. Actually, I think they probably love it. Scott and others wondered if the break-in could be related to the burglary of their neighbor's home that occurred on the 24th or the 26th of December, and that some believed was related to Lacey's disappearance. Detectives jumped on the case and found later in the week that it had actually been Scott's neighbor. She admitted to breaking in and told police she didn't know why she did it, but she felt compelled because she'd become obsessed with the case since the news of Lacey's disappearance broke. Like normally when you break into someone's house, you know why you did it or you have a reason for doing it. Um, so I'm just kind of wondering what she did while she was in there that was like so messed up that she couldn't admit to it. I'm pretty sure she probably just sat there and looked around a little bit and drank some whiskey and ate some cookies. What did she like put on Scott's clothes? And I don't think she went that far. People she didn't, know. I think she probably literally just went in there and looked around and be like, oh my God, this is where this happened. I mean, I, I get it. Hmm. I've wanted to do that in places I've seen before. There was no crime scene there, though, so to speak, was there? Potentially. No. We don't know. Yeah. We don't know where she was killed. By late January, wiretaps caught Scott making some pretty suspicious phone calls. He'd been put into contact with a realtor and began contacting him about selling his and Lacey's house fully furnished. He also had been calling car dealerships looking to sell Lacey's Land Rover. The Roaches had been fighting with Scott and his parents over items that were inside the home that they wished to keep because they were sentimental to Lacey. Petersons absolutely refused to let them into the house to take anything. Now they were even more concerned about getting the items, as if Scott sold the house furnished, the new owners would have no reason to hand them over to the Roaches. Why was he trying to sell all their stuff and their furniture with the house? 
to get rid of it. His excuse, he was saying that when Lacey came home, he didn't want her coming home to the same place where all of this happened, but I think he realistically just wanted it gone so he could move on with his life. Makes sense, I guess. To make matters even worse, wiretaps also showed that Scott was planning a trip to Mexico in early February. Detectives were highly concerned he was planning on fleeing before Lacey's body was found. With all of this going on, Scott decided that now the news of his affair with Amber had come to light, he should start doing his first media interviews since Lacey disappeared. He, of course, lied his way through them, telling Diane Sawyer that he told police about Amber his first interview with them and that he'd even told Lacey about his affair. When asked flat out if he'd murdered his wife, Scott said, quote, No, I did not, and I had absolutely nothing to do with her disappearance. You use the word murder, and right now everyone is looking for a body, and that's the hardest thing, because that is not a possible resolution for us. You use the word murder, and yeah, that's a possibility. It's not the one we're ready to accept. It creeps in my mind late at night and early in the morning, and during the day, all we can think about is the right resolution to find her well. Then Diane asked if he'd ever hit her, to which he replied, No, no, my god, no. Violence towards women is unapproachable. It's the most disgusting act to me. And I know the suspicion has turned to me, and it's, um, it's turned to me, one, because I'm her husband, and that's a natural thing, and, um, I answered your question because the suspicion has turned to me, and it's turned to me because of the inappropriate, um, that I had with Amber Fry. It kind of sounds like a Donald Trump tweet. It really does. He also the whole time couldn't say like affair. He kept he's like the um the um yeah, and he would just gloss over the like what he actually did. He then said he told the police the first night they were together, and when Diane asked if his wife found out about it, he said, "I told my wife in early December." He said it was not a positive, obviously inappropriate, but was not something we weren't dealing with. I can't say she was okay with the idea, but it's not something that could ever break us apart. Diane then asks, do you really expect people to believe that an eight and a half months pregnant woman learns her husband is having an affair and is saintly and casual about it, accommodating, makes peace with it? And Scott replies, well, you know, no one knows our relationship like us. At peace with it, not happy about it. Throughout the entire interview, Scott has an extremely hard time making eye contact with Diane, especially when he's lying to her. A website called BodyLanguageSuccess.com did an analysis on the interview and says that Scott is suppressing smiles throughout the interview, which is referred to as duping delight, something that occurs when a person is taking sincere pleasure in the belief that they are deceiving someone. That's a little strange. Yeah, I watched the interview today. I mean, I'd seen it a long time ago, but I watched it again today. And the whole part where he's saying like that he didn't kill her and that, that he's like, you guys are looking for a body and that's just the one the one thing we can't accept or whatever. He's literally smiling. He looks like he's about to giggle. He looks like Rory telling a really long, really shitty, terrible joke with a really dumb punchline. Those are my favorite. Because Rory's giddy the whole time, and that's Scott Peterson right here talking about... Yeah, no, uh, Jake showed me the interview when I got here, and he's got this weird little, like, facial smirk that almost looks like, man, did you get a whole bunch of Botox or something? Like, he has no real... It's Joker-esque. Yeah, it's really creepy. It's creepy. Definitely creepy. The next day, January 30th, detectives learned that Scott's Mexico trip was for a work conference. To be safe, they asked his boss to cancel any future trips. He also sold Lacey's Land Rover and bought himself a new truck. Was it a Ford? I think it was a Dodge. Ah, uh, he was trying to was trying to dodge his problems. On the 31st, he called Amber and told her he was going to take the polygraph he promised her at 11 a.m. the next day. In reality, he made the appointment for 9 a.m. When he arrived at the office, he called her and asked her to be there in half an hour so he could take the test. Of course, Amber wasn't able to get there on such short notice, allowing Scott to get out of taking the test. 
Detective Brocchini had actually followed Scott there and was shocked when he saw Scott walking up to his unmarked car. They exchanged words briefly, then Scott went into the office for ten minutes, then came back out and got into his truck and called Amber. He accused her of telling Brocchini about the polygraph, but she had nothing to do with it. Apparently, he was unaware of the numerous wiretaps on his phone. What do you think Brocchini said to him? They didn't really say much. It wasn't like anything of... What do you think, Rory? Hey, Scott. I could probably read you the exact conversation. I think it's in the book, but it wasn't anything Kill any good wives lately? I mean, that's, that's not the, how detectives do their the, jobs. That's the quickest way to get down to You ask, ask them the question that you m- most want the answer to, and you gauge their reaction. So you just walk up to him. Hey, Scotty boy, did you kill your wife? He's like, ugh. Well, he's not really taken by surprise anymore because everybody's been asking him that. So I don't know what he said, but I'm sure it was exciting. What else do you say to Scott Peterson? Hey, Scott. Something like that, maybe. (laughs) Oh, that's just boring. Things were quiet until February 18th, 2004, when detectives served another search warrant on Scott's home, warehouse, and recently rented storage unit. He told them he needed two duffel bags he had packed, so they searched them first. Inside, they found a bottle of wine, a bottle of Viagra, and over $2,000 in cash. And it took two duffel bags for that? No, the rest of it was clothing. Thanks for killing my joke there. Slashed it to the ground, didn't you? I mean, a bottle of wine, bottle of Viagra, and two grand in cash. Everyone knows where he was going. Vegas? Chuck E. Cheese, baby. <laughs> During the search of the home, they entered the nursery, a room Scott had told Diane Sawyer the door would stay closed on until there was someone to put in there. This was just another lie, as there were items covering the entire nursery floor, like Scott had turned it into a storage room and was just tossing things he didn't need in there. At his warehouse, they found his and Lacey's wedding album inside a metal trash can. In his new truck, they found a bag of missing flyers and buttons originally printed when Lacey first disappeared. The volunteer center had run out of both items, but Scott apparently didn't want them having any extras to hand out. I mean, it's a proven fact that those flyers don't do anything. I used to stare at them all the time in the grocery store when I was a kid, like, kind of creepily, actually. But if anybody had walked up and seen me just sitting there staring at all the missing kids, they'd probably be like, what the fuck's wrong with that child? (laughs) Hey, snatch that kid. (laughs) How do they not do anything? That's how, like, people are found. Yeah. Joke? I was making a joke. It was sarcasm. In March, Modesto PD officially reclassified Lacey's disappearance as a homicide. They also dropped off two large binders of case files to the district attorney, officially involving them for the first time. They also learned that the phone book found in the kitchen that was suspiciously open to an advertisement for a defense attorney on December 24th was nothing. The attorney had paid for special paper that was heavier than the rest of the phone book, which caused the pages to naturally open to his ad. Which is literally the best advertising ever. He has some better call saw level stuff right there. That's good. It really is because it's like everyone's got a phone book, so you're getting your theoretically everyone's going to see your name. Yeah, like they pull free. their they pull their phone book out for another reason, and boop, that's the first page it pops to. Thirty cents for thicker paper? Hell yeah! By this time, Scott was staying with his half sister Ann Bird, or at her family's cabin in Lake Arrowhead. During his time living with her, she recalls a few suspicious moments. Anne had a babysitter over one night, and Scott began hitting on her, making her drinks. He called for teenies. Oh, God, that's so gross. Hi, you want a flirtini? I think it was from Sex in the City. That's even worse. Which I assume is something he watched with Lacey. Hey, girl, you ever watched Sex in the City? Let me make you a flirtini. This is what me and my wife watched on Christmas Eve one year. He was so upfront with his advances, the babysitter became extremely uncomfortable. Scott apparently told Jackie Peterson about the woman, and she mentioned a few times to Anne that she wished Scott could find himself a woman like that. An uncomfortable babysitter? She wanted him to get remarried, I guess. Find another woman. So creepy. 
Was the babysitter like a grown woman? Or? I think she was like early 20s. Oh, okay. So Anne had a kid then? And Anne had she the... had two, yeah. Or <laughs> Anne just had babysitters come over to put her to bed at night? She invited them over for Scott. <laughs> no, like, she had two little children. And $20 an hour, you can come hang out with my brother-in-law. On February 18th, Scott came to her house talking about a shovel he'd borrowed to use at the cabin and needed to return. He gave her no explanation as to what he needed a shovel for. He also became obsessed with cleaning his pool and would go back to Modesto every two weeks. He told her it was to keep it from turning green, but Anne theorized that Scott had possibly drowned Lacey in the pool. So his own sister didn't even believe he was innocent at this point? At this point, no. She did at first, and then as time went on, she realized that he's definitely not. So do you think he like jumped out at her in the backyard when she went to go get the bucket of mop water and uh, just dunked her head in the pool? So, Anne mentioned in her book, which is normal for pregnant women, but Lacey would get in the pool and float on her back to take the weight off her back because she was so pregnant. So, if he had drowned her in the pool, more than likely she was already in the pool and he just snuck up. Okay, makes sense. In early April, Scott went with Anne to San Diego to visit her parents and friends. While they were out with friends in a bar, one of them saw Scott pull money out of his pocket and noticed he had a significant amount of Mexican pesos on him. A significant amount of Mexican pesos is like $23 US. It's like 23 million pesos and you got like... Unless they have like the 1,000 or 500. Ah, yeah, those are worth like five bucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in America, but if he was going to Mexico, they're worth... 1,000 pesos. I don't know. I, I think... Let's see here. What was the price of that soda? The point here is that he was planning on fleeing to Mexico. Ah. I thought it was, and it that's why been, he had Mexican Could it not have him. been from the trip that he'd been planning though? Or was that his fleeing? That moment? was his fleeing. It wasn't just for work? Oh, no, you're right. That was a work moment. It was for work, but I don't think he ever went. Ah. So he just had a bunch of money that he carried with him, just in case. Yeah, you know. Oh, might go to Mexico tomorrow. Oh, my boss called uh, me. I gotta go to Mexico. Good thing I got. He could have just been trying to fatten his stack, too. <laughs> I got enough money to buy three Fantas in this wad. <laughs> they were in San Diego, which is close to the border, so. Getting ready to rabbit. I see what you're saying. Run, rabbit. On April 13th, a couple was walking their dog off a bike path on the northern shore of the San Francisco Bay when the dog pulled them to a grassy area by the shore and started sniffing around intensely. When they looked closer, they noticed the dog was sniffing the decomposed body of an infant. There was a piece of nylon twine wrapped or tangled around the baby's body and the organs were exposed. The baby was full term but appeared to only be a few days old. The umbilical cord was still attached and looked to have been torn, not cut. The next day, the torso of an adult woman was found washed ashore near Point Isabel, directly east of Brooks Island and only a mile away from where the infant's body was found. The head, legs, and hands were all missing, and the woman was wearing tan maternity pants and a bra. The woman who called police to report the body informed them that dogs had been eating it when she found it. Damn. The autopsy of the infant could not conclusively determine if the baby had been birthed, but meconium, which is a stool produced by an infant while still in the womb, showed that he had likely not been birthed, but rather expelled from the uterus after the mother's death, which was called a coffin birth. There was a significant lack of animal and fish activity on the infant's body, meaning he had likely not been out of utero for long. There was no sign of abrasion from the nylon rope, meaning it had likely been tangled around the body in the bay. The autopsy of the woman's body determined her missing head and limbs were possibly caused by the body being weighted down at those points, and as the body decomposed, the torso detached. Her fifth, sixth, and ninth limbs were broken likely shortly before her death. There was no sign the baby had been birthed naturally, and all organs besides the uterus were missing. 
The fact that the uterus was still intact explained why the infant had not decomposed as badly, as it was protected inside the woman's body until shortly before it was found washed ashore. Damn, that's absolutely brutal. So they think the torso popped up because she had weights around her neck, arms, and legs. Basically. Like concrete boat anchors, maybe? Maybe, yeah. Okay. That's the most likely explanation. DNA had to be tested to determine if it was the bodies of Lacey and Connor, but detectives were confident that it was them. They contacted the families to tell them, but when they tried to find Scott to tell him, they learned no one had seen or heard from him for a few days. Finally, wiretaps traced him to San Diego on the 16th. He was found wandering the neighborhood of the house he was staying at, but detectives didn't recognize him right away. He had bleached his hair, newly grown goatee, and eyebrows, and was almost unrecognizable. He told Anne that he'd gone swimming and the chlorine in the pool had bleached his hair. He told her, he said, don't worry, sis. I want it that way. sync reference. God damn it. That's Backstreet Boys. I know I was going to do an sync one, and then Katie was going to hit us with a 98 degrees. Oh. I was debating on whether to go with that or he was going to be going, bye-bye. Gosh, that's a good one. I used to love sync. I listened to music as a child, surprisingly. I actually did Yeah, but weren't they, have a CD player. Weren't they already past your time? No. CD players were, that's for sure. Yes, they were already at MP3s. She'd been the one that told Scott the bodies had been found and said that he was angry, but the anger sounded like it was from being discovered rather than his wife and child being dead. Fuck this guy. Detective Grogan was able to obtain an arrest warrant for Scott, but told officers to hold off until the DNA came back and confirmed it was Lacey and Connor. They arrived in San Diego the 18th and began surveillance so they could make an arrest as soon as they got word of the DNA match. He, of course, began driving extremely erratically as soon as he realized he was being followed. Back on his counter-surveillance bullshit, eh? Mm-hmm. He apparently had plans to meet his brother that morning to play golf, but called and canceled, telling him it would be better if the press didn't get a photo of him golfing. And nobody told him that golf courses are like international waters? So he he's still thinking about optics here? Basically. Should have been thinking about the fact that no one can arrest you on a golf course. By 11 a.m., his driving was so extreme that officers had no choice but to arrest him to prevent any harm to others on the road. When officers asked if he knew why they stopped him, he said, his driving and, well, Modesto wants me about a murder. You think he'd be driving a little more carefully? (laughs) I had to see a man about a wallaby. Isn't that what Australians say when they have to poop? (laughs) That's what the (laughs) doctor... Based on what was found in the car Scott was driving, detectives realized that Scott was probably planning on fleeing to Mexico very soon. He had a total of $14,932 in cash, three credit cards, a foul weather jacket, a hand shovel, a backpack with a water purifier, water bottle, climbing rope, knife, duct tape, cooking grill, rain pants, Ziploc bag, socks, fire starters, a camp kit, glove, two folding knives, a folding saw, scissors, two packs of razor blades, waterproofing spray, a camp axe, hammock, binoculars, mask and snorkel, fishing rod, 12 pairs of shoes, his entire wardrobe, two California guidebooks, sleeping pills, Viagra, four cell phones, a gas credit card in his mother's name, and a large quantity of Mexican currency. This guy with his Mexican currency and Viagra. I also saw the pictures of everything that they took out of his car. He has some dirty drawers. I'm sorry for whoever had to go through his stuff. Gross. It was nasty, Scott. Why do you have Viagra and dirty drawers? So, the idea, he had $14,000 in cash? Mm-hmm. Huh. Not including his Mexican currency. Obviously. So we, what, would you, what do you think his plan was? Heading to Mexico and camping out in the desert? 
More than likely. His mom, Jackie, tried to say that there was some mix-up at the bank and she had accidentally taken $10,000 out of his account in cash instead of hers. And that's why he had so much cash on him. Why did she need 10 grand? Um, I think it was something to do with his lawyer at first, but she changed the story like four or five times. But yeah, she said that, oh, the 10000 was from me because when you go to the bank, it's really easy to accidentally take out $10,000 in cash out of your son's account instead of your own. Yeah, that, yeah. that happens frequently. The yeah. bank was like, um, no. And then they, she didn't explain the other $4,932 yeah, like, he had. Yeah, still a weird amount to be walking around with. And... The credit, the gas credit card was in Jackie's name, and one of his other credit cards was in his sister's name. So you think they were complicit in his runaway? I think he was taking money from people. I was going to say, maybe he just snagged their credit cards last time he saw them. I think Jackie was. I think Jackie knows a lot more than she lets on, because she just kept telling him the whole time, like, don't talk to cops, get a lawyer, deny everything. Do you think it's possible Jackie helped him dispose of the bodies? No. No, she was too frail, because she had really bad lung problems she had really bad lung problems from getting pneumonia so often as a kid so she was on constant oxygen so i don't think she could have helped plus she was far away she was in san diego he was in modesto i gotcha so they returned that cash to jackie yeah or to anybody who gets that cash jackie's like it was mine so they forfeit he forfeits his cash just because he had it on him when he was arrested i mean i guess when he gets out they give it back to him yeah, it's going to be buried <laughs> with him. Huh, I wonder where all that cash goes. I wonder how much currency LAPD has just collected away in evidence. Probably not that many after all the cops take a little bit. The honeypot, yeah. I mean, they can use it. If it's like confiscated because it's involved in drugs or something, they know it's being used illegally, they can, I'm pretty sure they can use it. I don't think they can. It's like if they confiscate a car. I think they burn it. I think they get They do sell it. the cars. They yeah. auction the cars. They auction the cars. Sometimes they drive them. Sometimes they literally turn them into police cars if they confiscate them from a drug dealer and they know it was bought with drug funds. Didn't you ever watch Dexter? He always went into the, the pool and borrowed cars. See, that's the thing, though, is I don't think people should forfeit their stuff. All right, that's a different topic altogether. Let's continue on. The best thing about that whole thing, though, is that you can go in there and find a car that already has blood on it and then use it to commit a crime. <laughs> Fucking golden. After his arrest, the tip line began blowing up. One tip came from a friend of Scott's during his time at Cal Poly. He said that Scott had described to him how he would dispose of a body. He would put a plastic bag around the head and weight it down. Put the body in salt water, so the water and fish would eat away the fingers and neck. So if the body was found, it wouldn't be able to be identified without fingerprints or a head. But they did identify Lacey, right? So They did, but she didn't have fingerprints or a head. Right, but there's other ways to identify a person at that point, right? He can use DNA, yeah. I mean, this was like 90s, so I don't think he was really thinking about DNA. Ah, this was back maybe even before the OJ. Nobody really even thought about DNA until CSI brought it to the forefront of everybody's mind. Yeah, everybody was all about gloves. On April 29th, Mark Garagos, a defense attorney famous for representing Michael Jackson, Winona Ryder, Chris Brown, and Colin Kaepernick, informed Scott's attorney he'd take the case pro bono, which apparently to him means a flat rate of $1 million. Did he get, where'd he get the one million? He got paid out? Lee and Jackie. Oh, they paid, oh. Well, that doesn't make it very pro bono. Exactly. He does a better job if, on the pro bono case, if you add the million dollar bonus. Give him a million dollars, yeah. yeah. 
He went into the case thinking he would come out on top and gain even more credibility for getting the hated Scott Peterson out of murder charges. The defense's case started strong during opening statements. The prosecution announced that the Martha Stewart episode that Scott had claimed to watch with Lacey made no mention of Meringue. When it was Garagos' turn for his opening statements, he played the clip of Martha Stewart specifically mentioning Meringue four times to prove that the prosecution had obviously made significant mistakes and were trying to frame Scott. Wouldn't it be awesome if in the Martha Stewart trial, they used a TV show, like an interview that Scott Peterson was in for part of her defense? Oh man, it would have just been full circle. Her defense for insider trading? Yeah, she knew about it and uh, the fertilizer industry plummeted and she sold all her stocks right before it happened. Thanks, Scott. That's not what... Okay, continue, Katie. The case quickly became the new O.J. Simpson trial, with people basically fighting to get inside the courtroom every day. Although Garagos started out strong, he presented no other theories on how Lacey may have died. He simply went into the courtroom and attempted to convince the jury that Scott had been framed. During closing statements, Garagos told the jury, quote, I'm, a- I'm not asking you to nominate Scott as husband of the year, but I tell you, on most accounts, he treated Lacey with respect. He cheated on her. And he's a 14-karat gold asshole for doing it. But he had a relationship that, by all accounts, was working. Isn't that the opposite of working? Yeah, kind of. I kind of feel like in a loving, caring relationship, you don't do things to hurt the other person. Like, that's kind of the opposite of what you do. And having sex with another person seems to be awful hurtful. I would agree. The jury began deliberations... November 3rd, 2004, and got off to a rocky start. Three jurors had to be removed in the middle of deliberations, but eventually they reached a verdict. Scott Peterson was guilty of first-degree murder for the death of Lacey and second-degree murder for the death of their unborn son, Connor. Jurors decided that Connor's death was not premeditated, rather an unintended consequence of killing Lacey. Shouldn't that still be capital murder? It was then time for sentencing, but another problem arose. Garagos was now demanding that a completely different jury be brought in to determine if Scott would get the death penalty. He claimed that the jury would be unable to give him a fair sentencing because Garagos himself had called Scott a 14-karat gold asshole and ruined his chance for mitigating circumstances. To be fair, that's not what you want your lawyer to say about you, I don't think. Either way. Yeah. The judge decided that this would be too expensive and rather told jurors to forget what Garagos said and only sentence based off the testimony they were about to hear. So they gave the judges those uh, electro-biomechanical neural-transmitting zero-synapse repositioners, like from Men in Black? Because I can't think of any other way for them to just... I think it's called a neuralizer. That's the short version, buddy. I mean, you can ask people to not take in, into account what someone just said and hope that they do it. I don't, I don't agree with that. Once you've heard it... You've yeah, heard it's, it. it's really hard to forget something once you've heard it, but I guess if you have to remove a statement from the record that is your brain, neuralizer. You, you can do it without a neuralizer. You just say, okay, well, that doesn't fit in with this. <laughs> just say, okay, well, I'm going to not think about that and just think about all of the other testimony that I just heard. It's really hard, though, when someone says 14 carat asshole. Yeah. So if you ever get summoned for jury duty, I highly recommend that you don't be put on a jury. Oh, I would I would try my best to not get put on a jury. That's probably for the best. I've only been called for jury duty once and I didn't show up. I've never gotten jury duty. I want it so bad. 
Yeah. She's the only person in America who's like, can I please get jury duty? Joe got called for jury duty. I wish I could just from Uruguay. take other people's jury duty. Like, if they don't want to go, I could just go. You can probably go vol- be a voluntary, a volunteer <laughs> juror, no? I get all sorts of, I don't know what's worse, the weirdos that, like, go there and act weird, or the weirdos that go there and, like, oh, man, I hope I get on a jury. I hope I can spend the next 14 days. At here. least 14 days, maybe months. Yeah, that'd be terrible. What if it's or if you murder? had to go stay at a hotel for like some crazy crime where you couldn't leave, you had to be sequestered. I literally don't care. That would be awesome. You couldn't take your dog. You wouldn't see your dog for a month. Yeah, or your boyfriend. I don't know who he is, but <laughs> he's a cool guy. A lot of the times it's too expensive to sequester Jerry, so they'll just let you okay. go home. That's what they did in this trial. They let them. They didn't sequester them. They just told them, don't watch the news. Don't read the newspaper. All right. They neuralized them. In the end, the jury sentenced Scott to death. He is currently sitting on death row at San Quentin State Prison in California. And didn't California, like, recently just kind of pause on all of their uh, death sentence carry-outers? I think the word you're looking for is... Commuters. Moratorium? (laughs) Moratorium? Death sentence commuters. They commuted all... I don't think they're going to be putting anybody to death. They just allowed all the uh, people sitting on death row to transfer prisons and... Join like general population shit and stuff. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, they just did that. So now Scott's just going to keep sitting there, right? Yeah, he's still going to be on death row in San Quentin. He's just not going to, I don't think he's going to be put to death anytime soon. No, they won't. If they, they didn't commute his death sentence, but they just don't put anyone to death. Yeah, so. And they haven't in a very long time. I hear that's going to make the rest of the inmates very happy. Well, okay. So I was researching one thing and. This man showed up by the name of, let's see here, what was this guy's name? Oh, yeah, Raynard Cummings. And uh, apparently there was a letter found in his cell that described Scott Peterson basically being a sex slave for the entire like group of people that were in that area of the prison. And, like, he just used him and abused him and stuff like that. But I couldn't find any confirmation on this. And then I did find that it was a National Enquirer article as well. So I don't know whether or not I can actually believe that. Because then I did look at uh, some lady who snapped a couple pictures of him. And he just looks like a guy. So you can't see all the sadness in his eyes from all that. In cell block D. Yeah. I mean, when you're on death row, you get... Like an hour outside of your cell a he day? He gets five. He oh, gets okay. five hours outside of his cell a day. And he takes full he, advantage can, of it. Where he can work out or play basketball. And that's it. By himself? No. He he gets to go out with, it looks like, a few more people these days. I think him and Wayne Adam Ford are both on death row at San Quentin. So they're probably buddies too. There are 740 people on death row at San Quentin. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people. Check out episode 53 to hear more about Wayne Adam Ford. Maybe it was 52. 52. Damn it, so close. 51, 52. And 51 and 52. Is that going to do it for this week, Katie? Mm-hmm. That is it. All right, guys. Well, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Four Corners Crimecast, on Instagram at Four Corners Crimecast, and on Twitter at Four Corners Crime. 
And give us a little rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify. Check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. Head over there for a full episode list to send us an idea for an episode that you'd like to hear or to get your free sticker from our merch store just by typing in Bingo Bango at checkout and getting that shipped out to you 100% for free. So hope you guys enjoyed this series. And remember, if you get caught by the cops getting ready to flee from Mexico, don't have their dirty drawers. Because everyone will know someday when they do a podcast about you. Are you doing the episode next week, Rory? I will. Okay. About dirty drawers. I will do the episode next week. What's it about? It's a surprise. Dun, 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 it's going to be something super nerdy, probably, because that's what I've been, I've been in this nerdy state of mind. But All right, guys. Talk to you next week. And thanks, Jen, for recommending this one. Thanks, Jen. Adios, motherfuckers. He, of course, lied his way through them, telling Diane Soria. <laughs> what in the fuck did I just say? Diane Soria. Soria. <laughs> hey, Diane Soria.